Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name's Rowan Kemp. I'm glad you could come to the second in our mini-series over these first four weeks looking at this book of Isaiah. It's no small thing to fall into the hands of the one true living God. No small thing to come face to face with the one true living God who has created and sustains this universe. That's all, surely one of the lessons that Isaiah learnt in that reading that we just had. But his experience wasn't unique. If you go back and think about the experience of the Israelites when they were first brought out of slavery in Egypt and they came to the one true living God at Mount Sinai, they heard the one true living God speak to them and so terrifying was the experience that they said to Moses, who was their human leader at the time, they said, Moses, you go and speak with the one true living God because if he speaks to us again, we will surely die. A bit later when Moses very boldly said to the one true living God, please show me your glory. The one true living God said, well, see this sort of cleft in the rock, this hole in the rock? How about you stand in there and I'll sort of cover you and you can have a look at my, quote, back because no one can see my face and live. Or when the prophet Ezekiel had his vision of not the one true living God in all of his glory, but actually he just saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the one true living God. When he just saw that, he says, I fell down as though dead. Isaiah's experience is not unique. It is no small thing to come face to face with the one true living God. Can you imagine for a moment if um, someone said, oh, I, I really, I love the sun. I want, to, I want to experience the sun more fully. You say, well, you can go outside and if it's a sunny day, you go, no, 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 it's not enough. I want to really experience the sun in all of its power and might. I want to feel those flames. No, no, you don't. You really, really don't. And yet all the time we hear people saying, well, I believe in God, I believe in God, if only he would show himself to me. You think, really? You really want to come face to face with the one true living God? That's no small thing. Given the testimony here in the Christian Bible, what makes you think that you would live to tell the tale if you did meet the one true living God face to face? Isaiah was terrified by this experience. How come he was so terrified? What was going on here? Well, you can see, if you've got your Bible there, it'd be helpful to open it up or look on with the person next to you, maybe, if they've got a Bible with them. Isaiah chapter 6, or call it up on your phone. You can see what Isaiah says there. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the temple was no small building. Imagine the castle complex, right? A big complex. He gets this vision of a throne and the one true living God sitting on it, and just the train of his robe is filling Kars Law. Right? It's, it's a big vision. But that wasn't what scared him. Notice what else we read here. 
If you read on at verse 4, at the sound of their voices, he hears these angelic voices, which we'll come back to in a moment, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So here in your car's law vision, the whole of car's law sort of filled with smoke and the whole thing shaking. That wasn't what scared him either. What scared him? Well, it was the reality that those angelic voices were proclaiming. Have a look there in chapter 6, verse 3. And these angelic beings, these seraphs, were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The reason Isaiah is so terrified, such that he thinks he might die, is because he comes face to face with the one true living God's uncompromising holiness. I'm bald. I'm not ashamed of that fact. Someone once, my father was bald, and someone once said to him, I gave him a card actually, and it said, God only created so many perfect heads. The rest he had to cover with hair. (laughs) That's about as lame as it gets when it comes to sort of trying to talk yourself up as a bald person. Um, I'm bald. I think it's true to say, looking carefully across the room, I'm balder than you, for which you go, praise the Lord. (laughs) I think, tragically, it's also, well, I notice a few people wearing hats, so maybe you're a bit scared that maybe you're you're balder than me. But I think, I suspect that I'm actually the baldest in the room. To say I'm balder than you is a comparative. To say I'm the baldest, I am the top of the bald pile, That is a superlative. That's his grammatical term. It's a superlative. Now, Isaiah is writing a record of his vision in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the way that you gave a superlative, the way you said someone was the baldest, is you would repeat the adjective. So I would say, Rowan, he's bald bald. That is, he is the baldest. that's, That's the top of the bald pile. Bald bald. You can't get more bald than that. Notice what these angelic beings are saying about the one true living God. They're saying, holy, holy, that means the holiest, right? He's the holiest. Holy, holy, holy. What's that third holy doing there that makes no grammatical sense in Hebrew? If you want to say the holiest, you say holy, holy. But that's not enough. It's holy, holy, holy. They invent a new grammatical construct, the super superlative. It doesn't exist. But that's what they're saying. He is is so holy, we have to add another holy. He's just, this is who he is. Holy. In fact, if you look at all the adjectives used to describe the one true living God in the Old Testament, holy is used more times than all the other ones put together. You want to find one word that captures who the one true living God is, He is holy, 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 holy. That's who he is. What does this mean to say that God is holy? Well, there's a clue there in verse 5. Look at Isaiah's response in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King. The Lord Almighty. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. What does he mean by that? It's not that he forgot to wash his face and the whole nation forgot to wash their face. It's not literally unclean lips. It's saying, no, because what, what's in your heart is then what comes out of your mouth, right? I'm, I'm a person, he, he's, he's forced to acknowledge, I'm a person who's not lived God's way, who's not shown respect for God's word, who actually, therefore, has rejected God himself by rejecting his word and his way. And he says, and that's true not just for me, that's, that's true for us, all of us, as a nation of God's people. And when Isaiah's unholiness is confronted with the one true living God's utter holiness, he knows the outcome. He says, I'm stuffed. I'm ruined. I'm a dead man. Because what is the consequence of that sort of rejection of God, what the Bible calls sin. Well, the New Testament tells us the wages of sin is death. He knows what he deserves at this moment, confronted with the one true living God's utter holiness. He deserves death. Woe is me. I am ruined. Holiness is a basic requirement that the one true living God has for his people. When the one true living God brought them out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and one of the things he said was this, from Leviticus chapter 11, he said, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is who the one true living God reveals himself to be. Holiness is a basic requirement for his people. I wonder if you've ever thought that you were actually about to die, like Isaiah. Um, it's not a pleasant experience. It's, it is a terrifying experience. Um, and it's not something we can sort of joke about. I mean, we sort of sometimes joke about it maybe after a long time has passed. Oh, once I... but, but actually at the time, it's terrifying. I mean, many, many years ago, I was in a, in a taxi in India for a three-hour ride that had to go 90 kilometres up 30 hairpin bends up a mount, like it was... And there were actually three times in that journey where I believed I was about to die. And it sort of sounds funny to say, yeah, I was in a taxi in India, but no, at the time, I actually thought, I can't believe... I'd been in India like less than 48 hours. I can't believe I've arrived in India and I'm actually about... To, I'm going to be a statistic that an Australian died in a car crash in India. I can't believe that. How's that happen? about to happen? It didn't happen. But I, believe, I thoroughly believe that it was about to happen three times in three hours. So you're laughing now. It was not funny at the time. <laughs> 18 months ago, I was swimming at an unpatrolled beach down near Wollongong with somebody else. We were swimming... We just got swept out just, just beyond where we could stand. It was just a small rip, just swept out where, beyond where we could stand. A couple of big waves came and my rashie was washed up over my head with my arms sort of stuck and I was under the water and I couldn't get my head up out of the water to breathe. Suddenly I was trapped and I, I completely freaked out. Because, I, again, I just believed, oh, my goodness, this is it. I can't, I'm about to drown. And what happens when, you're, when you really believe you're about to die? 
your whole body tenses up, the adrenaline pumps, you breathe incredibly fast and you have a lump in your throat the size of an orange. That's what Isaiah was experiencing in this moment. He believed this was it. And you might be saying, well, surely the one true living God, he's not, if, if he was to appear to you this afternoon on your way home as you got off the train, if he was to appear to you, surely it wouldn't be like that, right? He's not really like that now, is he? He is. He's unchanged. Here's some verses from the New Testament to help you see that. You can see them up here on the screen. From Hebrews chapter 12. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. Or from 1 Timothy 6. It is He alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honour and eternal dominion. Eternal rule. He's the King. Or in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is who the one true God has revealed himself to be. And when we confront him in our unholiness, we ought to be in fear of death. We ought to be. But what about Jesus, you say? Surely Jesus is not that scary. Well, maybe you should go away and have a reread of Revelation chapter 1. In the vision that the Apostle John, who was a friend of Jesus, walked around with him for three years, he's given a vision of the resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And you know when he sees that vision of Jesus, his friend, you know what he says? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is who the one true living God is in his uncompromising holiness. But the astounding moment in Isaiah's experience is actually what happens next. Because instead of dying, which is what he expected, he is the recipient of God's uncompromising mercy. So if you're feeling a little bit sort of troubled by what I've just talked about in terms of who this one true living God is, I now want to take you on a bit of an emotional journey into this one where actually I want you to be amazed and incredibly warmed and comforted by this fact. God's uncompromising mercy. Have a look if you've got Isaiah 6 still there, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs, these angelic beings, flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See... This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Though he is a man of unclean lips, he says, God cleanses him thoroughly and comprehensively at the very point of his need. The coal comes and touches his lips. He's making a point. Where you are unclean, I cleanse you. Where you have sinned, I atone for your sins. The coal from the altar touches his unclean lips. It renders him guilt-free, sin-clean. Now, this is worth reflecting on for a few moments, thinking about what's actually going on here. Three things we notice. First of all, it's God who removes our guilt. 
Why does God, the one true living God, do this at this particular point? What has Isaiah done to deserve it? Nothing is the answer. He's done nothing here. All he's done is cry out for mercy. He's actually just said, I'm done for. I'm a dead man in the face of the uncompromising holiness of the one true living God. But by a sheer act of mercy, of grace, God does what Isaiah couldn't do for himself. He takes away his guilt. He atones for his sin. He shows mercy towards him. Now, God provides atonement here. Notice the the coal comes from the altar. The altar in the temple was where they offered their sacrifices for sin. And in the Old Testament and right through into the New Testament, it's always clear that atonement comes through a substitutionary sacrifice. That's how atonement was made. That instead of you bearing the punishment for your rebellion against God, a sacrifice would be offered in your place. It was a substitutionary sacrifice, always. Now, in this vision, who was sacrificed? What was sacrificed? It's not clear. There's been some sacrifice. The coals are there on the altar and one of the coals comes and it's through this sacrifice that's happened that Isaiah is able to be cleansed, but it's not clear at all who. It's not clear here in Isaiah 6 anyway. But if you read on in the book of Isaiah, by the time you get through to Isaiah 53... Isaiah is given another vision which clarifies what was the sacrifice that atoned for his sin. And Isaiah 53, we read these words. It's in a passage about this servant of the Lord who suffers, so the suffering servant. And Isaiah tells us in this vision in Isaiah 53, he, this suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That's what Isaiah's just experienced, right? Peace with God through the punishment laid on this suffering servant. He goes on. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he goes on to say... He was cut off from the land of the living. This suffering servant died for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Here is the sacrifice that enabled Isaiah to be cleansed, to atone for his sins. But who is this figure? Well, in the book of Isaiah, it is a silhouette. It's not made clear who this is. It's just this servant of the Lord who bears the sins of all of the people. And it's not until you get until the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth that it's made clear, oh, Jesus is the one who is the suffering servant. So, for example, when you get to, say, Acts chapter 8, there's a story there about Philip, who was one of Jesus' followers, who meets an Ethiopian. This Ethiopian has been up to the Jerusalem temple to pray. He's on the way back from Jerusalem and he happens to be reading this passage, Isaiah 53. And Philip is there and... The Ethiopian says to Philip, who is Isaiah speaking about? Is he speaking about himself? Is that who he's talking about? Or is it somebody else? And what we read then in Acts chapter 8, verse 35, is that Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the Gospel about Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant, the one who bore the sins, the iniquities of us all, including of Isaiah, including of you, 
so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be guilt-free, that our sins might be atoned for. And notice, when the one true living God deals with your sins, He really deals with it. Notice what we're told there, He is guilt-free. Brings us to our second reflection, which is, God's cleansing of us is complete. Isaiah is guilt-free. It's not like uh, going to prison. I've never been to prison, but you imagine committing a crime for which you have to then go and, as we say, serve your time. You go to prison, you serve your time, you're released from prison, you're now a free person. However, you still have a record. That's not how it is with one true living God. When your sin is atoned for, you are now guilt-free. You are, you are now blameless. You have no record before Him. He, he, he make, wipes you completely clean. That's the sort of cleansing that the one true living God offers you. I don't know what, what things there are in your background. We often feel regret for the things we've done, even if as a Christian we've confessed them to the Lord and sought His forgiveness, but we still feel the regret. I'm just saying, yeah, but with the Lord, when He looks at you, He sees you pure and holy and blameless because your guilt has been removed. You are no longer guilty because your sins have been atoned for by Jesus. It's interesting here in, the, in this chapter, look at the experience that Isaiah has. He starts out by saying, woe is me, I'm ruined, for I've seen the Lord. And I, I imagine him at that point sort of looking down, right? I'm done for. And then when the seraph comes and cleanses him with that coal of atonement, and the Lord then says, who will we send? Who will be our messenger? Suddenly Isaiah says, send me. At, literally he says, behold, me. He's saying, God, look here, me, send me. He's gone from not wanting to look at all to going, look here, I'm ready, I'll go. So thorough is his cleansing. He now has complete confidence standing in the presence of the one true living God. Why? Because the one true living God, in his uncompromising mercy, has taken away the problem. And if you're a Christian person, you come to Jesus in faith, guess what? That's you! As the writer of Hebrews says, that's why we can have confidence to enter the most holy place, the inner sanctum of the temple, where the one true living God symbolically dropped. Isaiah was caught out and going, oh, no, I'm done for. But no, because we know Jesus, we can just walk in because of him, because of what he's done. That's the sort of confidence you can have in the presence of the one true living God. If he does appear to you when you get off the bus this afternoon, It'll be awesome. <laughs> but you have nothing to fear because he has shown you uncompromising mercy in Jesus. That's your relationship now with him because you've come to him in faith. And the third thing I just want to point out here is that God's uncompromising mercy is part of his holiness. Let me explain what I mean by this. We often fall into a trap of sort of saying, oh, God's holy, that's the things that separate us from, us from Him, but, oh, just as well, He's merciful, because that, may, that means that we can be reunited with Him. That's probably not the right way to think about it, because holy just means separate, distinct. 
The one true living God is separate and distinct from us in so many ways. And one of the ways he's different to us is in the extent of his mercy. He is far more merciful than we are. In fact, there is no one who is as merciful as him. His mercy is part of his uniqueness, his holiness. One writer, John Webster, puts it this way. I love this quote. And if you hang around the EU for a while, you'll hear me use it every now and then. The holiness of God is not to be identified simply as that which distances God from us. Rather, God is holy precisely as the one who in majesty and freedom and sovereign power bends down to us in mercy. His uncompromising mercy to you is part of his awesome holiness. Such is his love and mercy. Okay, so we've thought a little bit about his uncompromising holiness and his uncompromising mercy. Notice very quickly the response that this led to in Isaiah. It led to Isaiah's uncompromising zeal. You could saw that there in verse 8, which I talked about before. When I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, Here I am. Behold, send me. Send me. It turns into an uncompromising zeal. I think that's very interesting because Isaiah's example here shines a bit of a torch onto our complacency, maybe, when it comes to serving the one true living God. We're just not as zealous as Isaiah is at this particular point. But I wonder if it's because we've lost sight of the vision that Isaiah had. See, I think what helps you as you seek to serve the one true living God, as you seek to live for him, is this vision of him in his uncompromising holiness and his uncompromising mercy towards you. And if you've been involved in the EU, then you'll know it's been a big couple of weeks for those in the EU. You guys have been working flat out, cooking innumerable sausages and donuts and wearing green T-shirts till your skin has turned green and, and you've got a list of 50 people to ring and follow up and you, you're working really hard for the Lord. Are you feeling your zeal flag a little as we come to the end of week two? Well, how are you going to sort of recover your zeal for the Lord? Just grit your teeth and try harder? Punch each other on the shoulder, sort of G each other up? (laughs) No. Remember him who loves you and whom you are serving. Recapture this vision of him in his uncompromising holiness and his uncompromising mercy to you. See, what, what empowers Christian discipleship and Christian service is grasping God's incredible grace and mercy afresh. That's what will empower you to keep on living and serving him. I want to finish, though, by coming to the last section. We could sort of stop here. It would sort of be nice to stop here with uncompromising holiness. We're awed by that and compromising mercy. We're, we're incredibly comforted and grateful for that. And then seeing Isaiah's uncompromising zeal, that's sort of inspired by that. But that's not where the passage ends. It ends with this message, a very dark and uncomfortable message that Isaiah is to deliver to the people. 
It's a message of uncompromising judgment. So I'm going to finish in these final five minutes with this. The message God gives to Isaiah to relate to this people is dark. He's to announce uncompromising judgment. Time has run out for God's people. In fact, they've been so committed in their rejection of God that he won't even call them my people, which is what he normally does. He just says, go to this people. Already there's a distancing. But look at the message in Isaiah 6 verse 10. Make the mind of this people dull. Stop their ears. Shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. It's game over for God's people here. God's judgment for their continual rejection of him is inevitable and now, he says, it's unavoidable. And Isaiah seems shocked by this message. Verse 11, he says, How long, O Lord? And the Lord's answer there in the text emphasises how uncompromising the judgment will be. Verse 11 until the land is destroyed, utterly desolate. Verse 12, until everyone is sent away into exile. And then verse 13, the knockout blow, even if only a tenth remain, it will be burned again. The image there is if you've got a big, imagine a big gum tree you've got to chop down, you chop it down, get out the chainsaw, hack it down, and you're still left with this big stump, and God says, that's not enough. If that tree was my people, that's not enough, actually, that there's a stump left, so burn the thing. Set it on fire, because that's how you get rid of the stump. You burn it, and it burns itself down, and then you smash it to bits, and it's gone. He said, that's, it's an uncompromising message of judgment at this particular point, on his people who have so thoroughly rejected him. That's the message that he has. The only, only glimmer of light in this picture is right at the end of verse 13, where he says, the holy seed is the stump. Now, seed often means descendants in Isaiah. Holy seed probably refers to those who've been made holy, like Isaiah, actually. A bit earlier in Isaiah chapter 4, those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the people of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. It's a purifying fire out of which God is going to bring his faithful people, his holy remnant. But the the challenging thing about this message is not just that Isaiah had to give this message to his people. The challenging thing about this message is that this message is picked up by Jesus and applied to his hearers in his own day. I'll show you. Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 13 by his disciples, hey, Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? And I know you know the answer, right? It's because he'd done a good educational method unit and he'd sort of <laughs> learnt that telling a story is a good way to help students understand your point. No, that's completely wrong. So completely wrong, it's the opposite of right. <laughs> because what's the right answer? Jesus said... No, in them, his hearers, is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. He says, I'm speaking in parables so they won't get the message. Because this people, in Jesus' own day, have so rejected the one true living God, like in Isaiah's day, that now judgment is inevitable. 
and unavoidable. And so I speak this message so that they won't hear it right, except to those to whom it's given to understand. Now that is a bit of a dark, uncompromising message of judgement. And you say, well, did they really warrant that? That feels a bit harsh, right? How far had they wandered from the one true living God? Well, what did they do to the one God sent them? What did they do to Jesus? They killed him. That's how far their hearts were from the Lord their God. That's why they suffered this judgment. And this is then picked up and used throughout the rest of the New Testament. You can look these up later. John chapter 12, John uses it to explain why God's people at that time rejected Jesus. And then it's used again by Paul in Acts chapter 28 to explain why the Jews, after Jesus' resurrection, right around the world, were rejecting this message, or some of them at least, were rejecting this message about Jesus, but now the door had been opened to those who weren't Jews, to the Gentiles, that they might believe this message and be saved. So we've done a little bit of thinking about this chapter. I'll draw it together with this. How do we respond to this? Well, first of all, keep this vision of God. He is uncompromising in his holiness, but he's also uncompromising in his mercy towards those who confess their need. He is willing to bring that coal to your lips to wipe away your sin because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Pray God might make us more like Isaiah with his uncompromising zeal. And give thanks for Jesus who bore God's uncompromising judgment for you, for me, for all people so that we might share in God's mercy and grace.